I'm going to read from Lamentations 5, 14 to 22. The old men had left the city gate. The young men, their music, the joy of their hearts has ceased. Or dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we might be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Father, I can thank you for, for this morning uh, that you're gathering your people in, in your church. I want to pray right now, Father, Lord, as Pastor Ryan comes. Jesus, thank you that as I know you've been leading through the whole week as he opens scripture and your Holy Spirit, Father, Lord, just guides him. Give him today just the courage and the boldness as, as, he, as, a, as a servant today to come and proclaim uh, your message to us this morning. Uh, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are wrapping up our series through the book of Lamentations today, and it's been a great journey. I just heard so many stories of how God has been working and using this series in our lives. And if you're new here with us, what we're doing is we're, we're kind of looking back at what it's taught us with a, with a hopeful eye ahead of how lamentation over our sin, grief over our sin, sorrow over our sin might play a formative role in our lives as we walk forward with Jesus. We began this series acknowledging that, that most of us in this world have not been taught the formative role that suffering and pain plays in our life into making us more like Jesus. In fact, our culture has, has taught us to avoid it at all cost. And that if we are experiencing it, we need to find out how to get out of it as quickly as possible. But the reality for us is there are times when we find ourselves in these situations of extended suffering, extended grief, where we can't get out of them. And we're tempted to believe that God is not with us, that he's not uh, with us in those moments. And we, we, we think like David did in Psalm 55, 6, where he says, uh, and I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. That's the way we see suffering a lot of times. But I want to encourage you to think a little differently about it as we look at Lamentations 5 today, that, that, that there is something that we gain in our suffering, there is something that we gain in our sorrow and in our pain that makes us more like Jesus that cannot be gained in any other way. That's what we have to believe as Christians, because that's why God allows it, that's why God puts it upon us, lets us experience it, not so that we can be always saved from them, but so that we can be saved through those experiences. So the big idea of where we're headed today is this. Continuous gospel renewal begins with lamentation of our sin. Continuous gospel renewal begins with lamentation of our sin. And I've got three things that I just want to draw out from this passage. Um, three points. The continuous renewal comes from awareness, application, and alignment. So let's dig into awareness real quick. Awareness, what do I mean by that? Uh, developing and increasing awareness of God's character and our condition is part of how we lament sin. So let's look at Lamentations 5, 14 through 20 uh, quickly. Now, to remind you, uh, Jeremiah, we believe Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, and it was the story of God's people, uh, their city being destroyed, 
because of their sin, and them being pushed into Babylonian exile. And everything's gone. Things are as bad as they could possibly be on this earth. There's only one or two moments in the history of God's people that might be worse. You know, maybe the flood, maybe the, the Garden of Eden or the, the crucifixion, but that, that turned out better, obviously. But this is an awful time where God's people overnight see all of the evidences of God's presence in their life basically disappear. They see the city of Jerusalem destroyed. They see their king executed. They see um, their people dispersed. They're exiled out of their land. All of the evidences that God was with them disappear overnight. So what do they do? Well, Jeremiah leans into it and he writes about it. Here's what he says. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. You can, you can feel it, can't you? The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us. We've sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. It's an abandoned city. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? I love how Jeremiah writes here because he's not just writing to our heads, but he's writing to our hearts. He says, listen, Jerusalem used to be a place where the old men of the city would loiter out front. You know, all the business deals would be made out by the city gates. All the big decisions would be made the old men would tell maybe fishing stories, right, about the good old days. And they would hang out and they would enjoy life together. And the, the young men, they, they played music. They weren't so concerned about how to make a living. They just played to hear the music. You can feel the joy of that city, can't you? He says it's all gone. And why is it all gone? Because we've sinned, he said. We've blown it. We've messed it up. And God's hand of favor has been raised over us. We don't feel His favor like we did back in the day. And then He gets to the heart of it. He says our hearts have become sick. So you see this awareness of their sin increasing. And throughout the book of Lamentations, you see this, this process of grief vacillating through God's people where where they, they, they kind of feel like victims, they kind of feel like God should do something about it, but then they see, oh, you know, we've blown it, it's our fault, we deserve this. And, and in this moment, he says, our hearts are sick. And when I read that this week, it stopped me in my tracks. And just as a, a rule of thumb for me, when I'm reading the Bible, anytime that I read something that is just not really true in my heart, I just usually try to stop. I'm going to just blow by that because those are moments that we can pray and ask the Holy Spirit to make those things true in us. And so I just stopped in my tracks and I asked myself this question. Brian, when is the last time you were sick over your sin? When is the last time that your disobedience against God led you to a spot where you just paused and you turned back toward God? Have the consequences of sin for you ever been so unbearable in your life that you move from being the victim, the one that everything's happened to, to the one, to the perpetrator, the one who's sinned against God. It's like David, when he gets to the, the bottom of his grief for what he's done in Psalm 51, and we see this kind of inward dialogue that he's having with God after he's, 
he's had an affair on his wife, and then he's killed her husband, and, it's, and he's the king, right? We, we see what he says. He says, against you and you only have I sinned, God. Like, like, it's me and you. I know that there was Uriah, there was Bathsheba, there was my wife. There were all of these people involved that suffered collateral damage from my sin. But really, it's me and you. Against you and you only have I sinned. And, and this, when you get to this point in your journey with God, and ho- hopefully we get here often as God's people, but this is the beginning of godly sorrow. And Romans chapter 2 says that it's God's kindness as we grieve our sin that leads us to repentance. It's lament. And, and this is what Jesus treasures in his people. A year ago, we, we went through um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is this, this grand sermon that Jesus preaches that we took like six months to go through because it's so rich. And in it, one of the things Jesus says in the Beatitudes, which are basically like these kingdom priorities, these kingdom principles, is he says, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we said in that, that that maybe he means like mourning the death of someone, but it's far more likely that he means mourning your sin. Blessed are those who actually mourn their sin because they see that they've hurt God. Blessed are those who mourn because they'll find comfort. And where do we find comfort from? The scriptures tell us that, that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to be a comforter. So as we mourn sin, we see Jesus more and more and more. And, and I want to look at kind of two angles with this. There's an awareness of our condition or an awareness of our, our sinfulness that we grow in as we follow Jesus. But then there's also this awareness of God's character and his holiness that we become uh, aware of. Now, uh, last week it was so, so beautiful because there was a young lady uh, after the service who who said that, that she wanted to follow Jesus, and, and she was new to the church. And, and the thing that came out of her mouth as we dialogued about this was, I just feel so relieved. Did you know that when you follow Jesus, you get relief from the pain of sin? Not always from the consequences, but from the pain that sin has created in your life. You get relief because Jesus has come to comfort us as we mourn over our sin. He goes on to say this in, in, in Lamentations 5. He says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures for all generations. So, so he comes out of saying, God, we've sinned against you. You only. We, we've, we've hurt you. Our hearts are sick over our sin to saying, but you, but you, you're different. You reign forever. You're not like me. You've made a promise to me. You reign forever, God. And we see this gap that, that, that is created. Now, there's a diagram that I want to share with you that we've used several times here at New City. And I'm forever uh, indebted to Dr. Richard Lovelace, who wrote a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life in 1979. And then there's a, a truncated version of that called Renewal as a Way of Life that I would encourage anyone to read. It's beautiful. And in it, Uh, What he describes is this tension that we feel as we become Christians, where we sense more of God's holiness on one hand, and we sense more of our sinfulness on the other, and we really don't know what to do about it. In fact, my friend Jeff puts, puts it like this. He says, when you come to Christ... It's like you're given this huge dose of of, uh, spiritual anesthesia, right? And and when you get it, you first become a Christian, you're like, man, life's pretty good, you know, Jesus is good, 
you know, I'm doing well. And then as you walk with God, the anesthesia wears off and you become more aware of what you always have been and who God has always been. And there's this gap that's there. So so the, the, the diagram goes like this. I think it's a helpful tool. That we are all walking in darkness until we meet God, until he wakes up our hearts. And, and, our, and uh, as, we're, as we're walking in darkness, God's holiness uh, is not a concern of ours. Uh, it's, it's all gray because I can't see it. I'm, I'm, I'm blinded to God's holiness. I have no concern for God. I have only concern for myself. And, and my sinfulness is, is uh, something that I'm not really willing to see. I'm not really willing to go there because you know what? I'm not on my deathbed. I don't really have to acknowledge that right now. I can just keep living my way. But something happens in the life of every person who follows Jesus where the lights come on. And when the lights come on, we see ourselves for who we are and who God for who he is. And when we meet Jesus and he regenerates our hearts and we have faith to say that, that Jesus is Lord and I want to follow him, what we see is more of God's holiness and more of our own sinfulness. And, and, and it terrifies us because the longer we walk with God, the worse we seem to be getting. Can I get an amen? <laughs> that, was, that was hearty. It's good. And the more that we read of the Bible, the more that we realize that God is a lot different than me. And his ways are so much higher than my ways, his thoughts, my thoughts, and I am wicked. And so what the gospel does for us, what Jesus Christ has come to do, is to bridge that gap for us. As I follow Jesus, I, I, I'm a babe in Christ, so I might see glimpses of, of, of who God is and, and what he's done, and I, and I think to myself in those moments, um, you know, I, I'm doing well, and then we, we follow God a little longer, and we start to see that, that I'm supposed to be getting better as a Christian, and I'm not. And so we start either pretending or performing. We, we pretend that I'm not really that bad. And God, you know, he's not really that serious about all of that stuff that he did in Lamentations. I mean, he's a God of grace. He was a God of wrath back then. And we pretend and we, and we, and we act like God isn't who he says he is. And what we do in these moments is that we, we actually shrink the power of the gospel in our lives. We actually truncate it because we're so afraid of being honest about who we are and who God is because it seems so far apart. But that is exactly, church, what Jesus has come to do in our lives. He has come to swell and to fill up that space so gloriously, and we'll never understand how much Jesus has done for us. We'll never quite understand just how many sins he died for for us. We'll never quite get the full grasp of of it. But as we follow Jesus, and this awareness in our life becomes more and more our reality, I want to encourage you to lean into it more. As we walk with Jesus, we see that he knows exactly who we are. He knows what you were thinking this morning, last week when you were in college. He knows exactly who you are. He knows how many Hairs are on your head. He knows how many stars are in the sky. He knows every single thing about you. I was struck this morning as I was reading John chapter 4. Uh, it's a story about this lady um, from Samaria. We don't know her name, but she's 
ashamed and living in sin, and um, Jesus goes out of his way to meet her. And, um, and, and, and she's hiding in her sin and shame in the middle of the day, getting water at this well. And, and what happens in her life is that as she interacts with Jesus, and the disciples really can't make sense of what's going on. They're trying to figure it out. Um, but they're too distracted with, like, what's for lunch, right? Maybe that's some of you in here today. I don't know. Um, they're they're kind of distracted. Jesus, you need to eat something. And Jesus finally says, listen, my will is to do, the, you know, my food is to do the will of God. But what he, what he says to the woman in this is that he can give her eternal life, a, a well of water that springs up from within her. And, and whenever she finally sits down the jar of water that she'd been drawing this lukewarm water from in the middle of the day because she had all these men that she was with and didn't want anyone to see her, when she finally sat that life down, when she finally had the courage to be honest about who she really was, the good news of the gospel for her was this, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. <laughs> Can you believe that? That that was her testimony? Hey, come meet this guy who knows everything about me. That terrifies us, doesn't it? We don't want other people to know everything about us. And that's because we pretend and we shrink the cross because we think that God is not that good. We think that Jesus really can't forgive us that deeply. But when we walk in the light as he's in the light, what begins to happen in our lives is we have this life of integrity that doesn't say, I'm better than you, but, but it looks at this reality that the best news we can tell anyone is that God knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you've done, and he sent Jesus for you in spite of all of that. And the grace that he has for you is not only for those sins that you committed back then, those sins that you're committing right now, but also those sins that you'll commit in the future. That's how good Jesus is, church. And what we begin to see as we grow in this awareness of our own sinfulness and his holiness is that our hearts are ripe to receive more of Jesus into our lives. Secondly, we begin to apply the gospel to our lives. Applying the gospel deeply leads us, listen to this word, to a galvanized identity in Christ. A more certain identity in Christ. Listen to uh, Lamentations 5, how he, how he kind of closes the book here. He says, restore us to yourself, O God, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And it's kind of like on this weird tone, right? You, you'd expect it to end on the fairy tale. Restore us, God, you're going to do it. But you can see that Jeremiah is not quite there yet in his heart. He knows the promise. He knows that God is who he is. He knows that he'll redeem, he'll restore. It might not feel like it in Jeremiah's lifetime. But he's, his heart yet isn't quite where his theology is yet. It's not really there yet. And so we get to this place in life where we realize in defeat that, God, I can't get to you. I, I can't climb that ladder of your holiness. I, I can't keep up with the Joneses. I can't do the things that you require of me, God. And, and, and it's almost like God looks at us and he says, finally, you're realizing it. I've got to come to you. And we get to that point and we see from John 1, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that He had to come to us the whole time. We could never get to Him. And anytime we think we can get to Him, that we don't really need His grace for every single moment of our lives, we're living in this lying world, this pretending and performing world. 
And so Jesus is this rescue plan. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about us failing and messing it up and God redeeming and restoring us and sending Jesus to us. But, but so many times we see the grace of God only for our initial relationship with God. I, I love how Jack Miller says it. He, he, and, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, but he talks about how the gospel, the work that Jesus has done for us, uh, a lot of times we like to think about it as like a launch pad. So you, you ever watch the, a rocket shoot into the air, you know, I remember in, in school, you know, watching, you know, we, we the shuttle takeoffs and all that, and 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 when you all of all of the weight and all of the energy is on the initial kind of kind of push off, the lift off, and then everything falls off that's not necessary from there after they get into orbit. A lot of times we treat our relationship with God like that, like yeah, man, His power was so strong in my life to save me from my sin, but now I've really got to kind of keep it together on my own. And so we treat our relationship with God like His grace was sufficient to kind of get me into orbit. And now that I'm up in orbit, uh, it's kind of up to me to, to figure out the path, to, to chart the, the, the journey ahead. But, but he, he kind of juxtaposes that launch pad with the idea of a house and a foundation. And he says, the gospel for Christians is really more like a foundation. Now, the foundation of my house is not something I go out and I'm just so thankful to God for every single day. Anybody do that? Maybe you, maybe you do, I don't know. But, but it's not something that you notice a lot. It's not something that you think about a lot. But if it wasn't there or if it had trouble, you would think about it all the time. Because your house would not stand. He's saying that the gospel, what Jesus has done, empowers everything. It holds everything together. That Jesus is both capstone and cornerstone. He's both of those. He holds the whole house together all the time. And, and, I, and my hope for our church is that we would live like the gospel is the foundation for the house, not just the launch pad. And to do that uh, means that we never outgrow the truths of the gospel. Like, like I remember having a conversation with a guy, this was probably 10 years ago, he says, you know, when are we going to really get past the, the milk and move on to the meat? And what he was saying was, when do we get past like, okay, Jesus saved me, to like, hey, look what I can do for Jesus. And I think he was misinterpreting that passage because I don't think we ever get past this. In fact, if we think we should get past this, we're almost certainly living in sin. My hope is that, that we would grow deeper and deeper and deeper into this. I'm going to share a story about, about one of the ways that I've been recently trying to, to kind of galvanize my identity in Christ a little bit more. And it, it gets a bit personal here. Um, I had this bold idea back, I think it was November of last year, that I wanted a 360 review from our elders. Do you know what that is? A 360 review is, is where you ask, you know, people around you to give honest feedback about who you are and to compile that feedback and then to kind of have a, a moment where you tell the good, bad, and the ugly. And, and, uh, and I, I would only recommend doing this if you're prepared for honest feedback. Can I just say that? And we've got some of the most loving elders in this church, most gracious men in this church that, that, that give leadership uh, to New City. And uh, over the course of our time together, um, there was lots of encouragement from them, tons and tons of encouragement. And uh, I was so encouraged. And then, then I, I saw the agenda. I knew it wasn't going to stay like this. And so, uh, and so th the conversation begins to turn. And um, I, I was expecting maybe like, like some some character or some some developmental issues that would be like, hey Ryan, 
you know, don't work so much. You need to do a better job resting. Don't we like those? It's like, oh, yeah, I guess I can rest a little bit more, you know. Um, but what, what some of the things they shared with me were so beautiful, and they were on the money. They weren't just, like, work issues. They were character issues. And I thought, Wow. And as they began to sh- graciously share these things with me, I was, I was, I was tempted. I was kind of like a little bit defensive inside, you know, um, because we get that way, because we were kind of exposed and um, I'm trying to justify a little bit, even, even in the meeting, I think. And, but as I went back and I, and I took their feedback and their hearts, that they expressed their feedback to me and I began to pray about it, I began to see that there was an opportunity for me to move to apply the gospel more deeply to my soul. To, to, not just say, to, not, to not just say, okay, how can I be more wise in how I speak to people? Or, or, or how can I, um, you, know, listen, you know, listen more quickly and, and, and talk more slowly? Like, like, how can I appear to do that? Instead of putting a bunch of like, tips and tricks and, you know, kind of getting it all figured out where I can appear to be that way, I started to, to ask myself these types of questions. And, and I got to be honest, I'm still finding the answers. What does it give me that Jesus does not when I'm prideful? God, why do I talk when I should listen? What do I gain from being quick to speak that I cannot gain in Jesus from being quick to listen? Do you see the difference in those types of approaches? One is a really quick fix. Another one is a journey. And I think when the, the, the gospel is the foundation of your soul, it is the foundation of the spiritual house that you are, you, you, you begin to journey a little more slowly and ask bigger questions that you might not be able to answer so quickly. And you begin to realize what, what Paul wrote in Philippians 1, that he who began the good work will complete the good work, and we're not going to be finished today. And that, that, that journey involves us stopping and asking, what am I chasing? What am I doing when I'm doing what I'm doing? As we've said a few times around New City. What, what are we thinking about when we're doing these things? When, when these behaviors are coming, what, what's actually going on beneath the surface? Because when we begin to apply the gospel like that, it changes our character. And that's what Jesus wants to do in us. And, and, and how does God do that? Well, it actually comes from a prophecy that Jeremiah had that he received from the Lord in Jeremiah 31. He, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. An, a new iteration of this covenant that I've got. That, that I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I'm going to do it in a fresh way. He says, um, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says this, I'll put my law within them. I'll put my law within them. And I'll write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God. And they'll be my people. And no longer shall we each say to his brother, know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. What we see God do is we see his promise moving closer and closer till it lives in us. It's not something outside of us, it's something that lives in us through faith. 
And what we have to do as Christians to apply the gospel deeply is access that promise of God through faith in our hearts. So, for instance, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Think about that. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's really hot in here, guys, isn't it? It's all right. This is part of church planning, I think. We have to put God's grace to work in our hearts. That, that's what faith does in our hearts. We have to work out our salvation. So that means that we grapple with God and say, God, you promised to make me new, make me new. God, this in my life does not line up with you. Would you, would you do a new work in me? Would you apply this more deeply than I've ever seen it in my life before? Because you live inside of me. You promised to live inside of me, to carry me to completion, to finish the work that you've started. And our confession of our sin and our awareness of that sin and our hope in the gospel by faith is that work. It's all part of it. And without lamentation over our sin, without grief and sorrow over our sin, we never get to apply the gospel that deep. It just becomes this cursory application, this, this shellac, this veneer over our lives. And it never really changes our character. So the next time that you see in your lives those moments that really freak you out, when you realize you've got some character issues to work on, like me, would you stop and pause? And not get defensive, but ask God to show you what Jesus came to do inside of you to change you and to make you more like himself. Lastly, we've got this awareness of our sin and God's holiness and this deep application of the promises of God in the gospel. Then there's this moment that we have of alignment. Um, we must then align our mission and purpose in life around our identity in Christ. So much of my life, I've been trying to get God on my agenda. God, here's how I want to plant a church. Here's who's going to be a part of it. Here's who we'd like to see. Here's the timeline, yada, 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 yada. My marriage, my kids, all this, Right? We've got, and we spend our prayer time trying to get God on board with us. And we miss the fact that God is right with us, and he's doing work right under our nose, but we're so distracted by what we want him to do that we can't see what he's actually doing in our lives. And so we have to align our purposes and our mission in life around what he's doing and what he's come to do. An encounter with God's grace always leads us to the place where we have to align ourselves to him. Because we realize that we're, out of, we're out, of, out of sorts, out of whack here. Things aren't the way that they should be. Even though life's going great, these things over here, they're kind of, they're not lining up here. And, and, and our, our job isn't to convince God to get on board with us, but it's for us to get on board with what God's doing. Henry Blackaby wrote this, um, wrote this book and has a study guide with it called Experiencing God several years ago, and he talks about this idea of alignment. And he kind of goes through the Bible and shows different places where people had to get on board with what God was doing instead of trying to get God on board with what they were doing. And he says things like this, Noah could not continue on with his life and build the ark at the same time. Noah had to stop. He had to stop to obey and go do this new thing that God called him to do. Abraham could not stay in the land of Ur and become the father of a nation that the entire world would be blessed by. He had to leave his country. He had to leave his home and go to a place that God would show him, the scriptures say. Moses could not hide out in the desert and confront 
Pharaoh in Egypt at the same time. He had to leave the hiding. God meets him and calls him to do that, and he has to obey. David could not stay in the field with the sheep and become a king at the same time. David had to leave the field. Jonah had to leave his home and his racist, prejudiced heart to go to Nineveh. And we see that he's still really not there, even though he obeys in part. His heart's really not following it. But he makes a move in that direction. We see that Peter, James, and John had to leave their fishing business to follow Jesus. We see that Matthew and Levi and Zacchaeus had to leave their tax collector booth, their lucrative business to follow Jesus. Now, I don't know what this looks like for you today, but I know that when God moves in your life, we have to align ourselves to what he's calling us to do. So, so maybe you've got to consider just for a moment, if you feel like there's something in your life that you're consistently pushing against and God is not opening a door, is it an opportunity for you to realign yourself or to persevere through in prayer? Because we see both in the scriptures. Many times as I surrender to God, that's a word we don't like to use, as I surrender to God, I see that his plan is right in front of me for me to walk in and join. And that's what God has in store for us. And my prayer for us as a church has been that we would do this. And, and when this is happening well, Acts 3.19 describes what the church is like, what this idea of renewal is like, that we're consistently being made new in God despite our circumstances. He says that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Now, now he's, he's talking about, right before this, he talks about the need to repent. And he says that when you repent and see who you are and who God is, and you, you seek to align your life and apply the gospel deeply, that times of refreshing come into your life. I don't fully know what that means, but I can feel it. You know what I'm talking about? Time, who doesn't want times of refreshing to flow into your life? Where, where you're not jumping from the next experience or the next job or the next relationship, but you're experiencing a fullness of God from within yourself that nobody can take away, that joy. Awareness, application, and alignment over and over and over again. That's what God desires for our lives. Because continuous gospel renewal starts with lamenting our sin. Guys, this series has been just so rewarding for me, and I pray it has been for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to steward um, your word this morning, to steward the mysteries of God, as Paul said in, in your word. God, that we would see everything in our lives as an opportunity to get more of Jesus and less of ourselves. It's just like what John the baptizer prayed when people tried to crown him. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. Lord, that is the Christian life. Some of us have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and we think we've got this thing figured out. God, would you humble us if that's us today? Would you show us that we have no idea? Would you show us the places that we're hiding, where we're pretending, and we're performing? Lord, for those of us that are struggling to follow Jesus today, would you comfort them? As they more not just their circumstances, but their sin, would they see the hope of Jesus in front of them? 
And for those that are just brand new on this journey, God, would you give us such a sense of hope for what lies ahead? Not a promise in perfect circumstances, but a promise of the new covenant that you'll be with us, that you'll live in us, and you'll give us your spirit to remind us of all the things that Jesus came to say and came to do and came to be. Would you grow us, Lord? We're not letting go of you because you'll bless us, Lord, and because you, you steady our grip. So we're thankful for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.